If you can, if you brought your Bible, turn it. First Corinthians three. First Corinthians three. This is where we'll be today. First Corinthians three. We're going to start right at the beginning of verse one, just reading down to verse nine. First Corinthians three, one through nine. Here's what it says. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, well, I follow Paul, and another, well, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the Lord. When I was, um, when, when I was in mid, starting middle school, seventh grade, 12 years old or so, I went from Creekview Elementary um, here in town to Vail Middle School, which isn't, doesn't exist anymore. It was a terrifying experience, right? Um, I, was, I would imagine middle school for everybody is terrifying. Um, it was for a little kid who was also happened to be a nerd. And so I enter into that, and, you know, there's just, I mean, it was huge. It's just, it just this massive space. For those of you who are from Middletown, you remember the building. Massive building. Hundreds of kids. It, it was overwhelming. And thankfully, by God's grace, I had a thing called an older sister um, who, who wasn't just horribly rotten to me all the time. And she also happened to be cool, which is even a, 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 an additional bonus. Well-connected, you know, well-networked. And so... I remember, I can vividly remember my seventh grade orientation and seeing literally hundreds of kids everywhere. And I can re vividly remember my older sister at the entrance of the building pointing out the people that I should pay attention to and say that you want to know him, you want to know him, you want to know her, like people of influence. If you, if, and I just can vividly remember her in our own little middle school way, she, I remember her explaining to me, if you, if you attach yourself to them, if you, if you become friends, you're going to be just fine, okay? And I just remember nodding, like, well, how am I going to do that, you know? Because it's in, in middle school, the reality is, I mean, your identity is just this unbundled mess of, like, you just don't really know what, who you are, where you fit, where you belong, um, you're just incredibly fragile. And of course that ends after middle school, and then you grow up and you no longer deal with any of that, right? You know, that's not true. My point in telling you that story is something like that is happening in the first century church in this little passage you just read. It's basically the same thing. First and second Corinthians, these two letters we have in our New Testament, are letters written by the Apostle Paul to a first century church in the city of Corinth. Um, he's, he planted the church. Uh, he's no longer physically there, obviously, since he's 
uh, writing this letter to them, um, he has had correspondence with them over throughout the years, and, and, and letters that we don't really have in contact anymore, but there had been other letters, and he's had reports from friends, Chloe's people, he mentions in chapter one, friends that have kind of traveled back and forth, been to the church and seen him, and he, they're telling him things, and so he's learning things about what's happening in this church that he still very much loves and is attached to. And so he, uh, this First Corinthians letter is full of pastoral corrections to problems that are popping up in the, in the culture of this church. I mean, that's why you, when you read these letters, particularly First Corinthians, you'll see just these issues that he's addressing. One of the problems is said right here in the very beginning of our reading, which is jealousy and strife. Jealousy and strife is not shockingly causing division in this church. Jealousy and strife. Can you believe that inside the church? Can you believe it? Of course we can. So the issue here is they're becoming snobbish and argumentative. They've got snobbery, social, religious snobbery in this church. And it's being fueled by this strange enmeshment to particular ministry leaders. Apollos being one of them, Paul himself being one of them, and he didn't mention it here, but he does in chapter 1, Cephas, Peter, he mentions him as well. So there's been different kind of preachers and ministers that have kind of come through this church, and people like, it's a crazy idea, but sometimes people in the church prefer one pastor over another. And of course, you have that happening here. What started off as mere preference over different teaching styles has, has, uh, you know, has existed over the life of this church, um, has turned into something a lot more divisive, and Paul's caught wind of it, and he does not like it. Meaning, what's happening is this church is propping up one particular leader to heights that he doesn't belong, and therefore, as consequence, diminishing other leaders. There's like this weird hierarchy thing being created. And sadly, but not surprisingly, it has led to tribalism and factions in the church. Uh, the problem isn't so much preference. I don't think when you read carefully, um, and if you really want to get through, I, I, can't, I don't have the time to unpack the whole thing. You would really need to read 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, 4, and kind of see how Paul's unpacking all of it. But I don't think preference is so much the problem. The problem is, if you read carefully, is that these early Christians are using well-known leaders to work out their own ego issues. They're struggling with their identity. They're having identity struggles. So when they say things like, oh, I follow Apollos, or I follow Paul, or I follow Peter, they're in essence trying to attach themselves to what they see as more intellectual or a pure form of spirituality compared to others. They're turning, they've turned pastoral leader association and attachment into a comparative and competitive sport. I've done this. I did this. I remember earlier in my Christian years, I remember, it's like embarrassing just to admit this, but it's just true. I just remember mocking people on the particular translation of Bible that they used. It's just, that, you know what that is? It's a fragile ego. It's 100% a fragile ego. I remember mocking people because like, you listen to who? Like, you podcast who? You listen to what, Pat? Like, this. And there's this sense in which underneath all of that is you're just somehow dealing with you don't know who you are underneath. 
N.T. Wright, uh, a scholar N.T. Wright, described the problem as church sophistry, essentially thinking somehow the more savvy and intellectual you sound, or the more savvy and intellectual your subscribed leader is, well, that, that just means that you yourself are actually more savvy and intellectual and spiritual. You know, like somehow you, you, there's like this language that you can use, and it's like, oh, that smells really Christian. And the irony is Paul, <laughs> Paul ironically lays out this reality that actually, if you think that way, if you talk that way, it just reveals actually how immature you are. Oof. The full lesson Paul will work out in chapter 4 is that true Christianity isn't comparative or competitive in the first place. It's just not. True mature Christianity isn't self-absorbed enough to worry about whether you sound savvy, sophisticated, intellectual, or super spiritual. True true Christian maturity isn't like making sure that they try to figure out a way to quote Bible verses all the time. That's just true. It just kind of comes out in the way they live, not so much about making sure that people hear them talk a particular way. What matters is speaking truthfully in love, no matter the style, no matter the rhetoric, or associations that you stack up, or Bible translation that you use. I will inevitably probably make about three people mad in this room right now because I'm talking that way. For Paul, maturity in Christ means exiting out of this rat race of image projection and image protection. You're not just a part of that anymore. You don't even care about that. Here's the problem. If, if, if we're trying to inflate our egos by a particular Christian leader that we subscribe to, then in essence, in essence, underneath all of that, like if you peel back the layers, we're trying to smuggle in a merit-based religion again. That's what we do. We, and, and, and the church is guilty of this all the time. Little by little, we smuggle this junk back into a community of people that is absolutely should be centered on a gospel of grace. It's not a merit-based religion. And so there shouldn't be this way of like propping ourselves up or puffing ourselves up because of what we read or what we listen to or who our leader or pastor or celebrity or whoever it is that we like and hold up in high esteem. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6 through 7, he says this, and he works this out, he keeps going with this idea. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another, of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? How did any of you get in here to this church building? I mean, like, by your heart. How did you get in here? How did you become a part of the community of faith? By your own works? No way. It's all a gift. Every bit of it. Paul is saying, look, the the church community is no place for an inflated or a deflated ego. You know, both revealed that self-absorption, right? Like, there's two types of, there's two types of ways we flex out fragile egos, right? Some people are always bragging, right? They're just, in in every room that they're in, it's like, we know you're here. You're making yourself plenty known about how great you are. You know the types. It's none of you. But you know the types. It's like, underneath that, what? Is fragile ego. But you know the other type of fragile ego? 
mousy types. Mousy types, they can't talk about themselves. Or when they're complimented, they're like, well, that's not me. That's, that's no, you don't even know how bad I am. Fragile ego. It's all self-absorption. You're underneath it all, you're desperately worried what people might think of you. The church should have a sign on it. Like at the building, when you walk in, it's like, leave your ego somewhere else. Right? They don't belong here. This is not the place for that. This is not the community that's dealing with that anymore. It shouldn't be. The gospel, you see, the good news that the Bible's talking about, the good news that Jesus has brought, it's this invitation to be healed of a fragile ego. It does it take time? Oh, man. It takes a lot of time. I'm still dealing with it. But this is the work that you do if you're actually really receiving the gospel. You're, you're like having to deal with you. Like you're having to deal with yourself and your ego and everything that's going and on and churning inside of you. The gospel invites you to die to the need of being loved by the world. Like your need to be loved by the world and the way the world does things, the gospel says you got to die to that stuff. That's terrible news. <laughs> That's horrible news. Except, except if you can lose your life in that particular way, if you can finally begin to die to your need to being liked and loved by everybody around you in the whole world, the, the crazy thing is, the Bible says, you'll find life. You could finally begin to find life. Life. It's the upside-down nature of the gospel. If you can lose your life in this way, you'll find it. If you can begin, you can begin a journey finally of being free from self-absorption and always being worried what people think of you and whether you're important to them or not. You're just off the map. Now, why am I talking about all this? Why am I, why am I talking about first-century Snobbery, fragile egos, tribalism, and making leaders into celebrities. Well, we're doing seven weeks. We're going to spend seven weeks looking at problems that often plague the church. Problems that many identify as their very reason for abandoning the church. What I find so interesting is that... <laughs> So many of the problems people rightfully feel in the church, like they, they see it, they feel it, they sense it, and they go, I don't want to be a part of that anymore. And it, the, the thing about that is, is very often it's th those are the exact problems that the church itself was wrestling with centuries ago. Like the things we talk about now and we're like, that's disgusting, as if it's a new phenomenon. And it's not. It's a really old one. Long before any of these issues or problems that we feel and sense showed up in our cultural or personal consciousness that the church was wrestling with. Essentially, I find myself wanting to ask many who distance themselves from the church this. I want to ask them, why? Why don't you like going? Why don't you like being a part of it? So that when they give their answer, usually I can say, oh yeah, 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 that's true. 
You know the Bible feels the same way. The Bible doesn't like that either. <laughs> it's really struggling with the same thing. This is the reality that we have to face, um, and this is why I want to talk about it. This isn't a series, to be clear. I, I, I have no interest, my hope, and my plan is not to make this series about defending the church against its critics. Goodness, no. The church does not, need, does not honor the Lord in taking a defensive, quarrelsome, or insecure posture when it is critiqued. I actually think the church is a mess, but the, 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 the irony is, is the church is the most stable community in the entire world. It's the only thing that the, Jesus said that the gates of hell won't prevail against it. That doesn't mean that it's perfectly clean and pure and perfect. No, far from it. So I have zero interest in defending the church against... The church doesn't need defending. But at the same time, this isn't a series viciously attacking the church if somehow we're going to right the wrongs and win the skeptics and critics over through self-pity and wallowing in our shame about how bad we are. Like somehow people are going to start coming in if we're going, oh my gosh, we're awful. That doesn't win anyone over either and doesn't change us as people. This is about honoring. My hope is, is that we can honor what the Bible actually wants us to do, which is to have the honesty and the bravery to, to just do some self-examination and say, hey, like, let's actually listen and look carefully and go, does the shoe fit? And like, should there be things that we need to change about ourselves? Is there an invitation here for us to like really look at this and be humbled by the fact that, yeah, there's, there's some things here. They're not so pretty. I'm not giving up on, on, on the church, but at the same time, I just want to be honest about this stuff. And then ask the Lord and go to the Lord to help us face our temptations and mistakes that we're prone to. You see, the reality is we're living in a post-Christian culture. You feel it. You, you feel it. We're living in this post-Christian culture where so much of the church has lost its prophetic voice. It, 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 it's lost its reliability for integrity and love. And it's evidenced in its toxic cultures and declining numbers. And, and the lack of trust and I think in the, the, the fear that we feel often leads to the, the strange, just super strange and even more damaging reach for solutions. It's like, it's like so many people in the church are like wounded animals and they're just getting nasty because they fear what's coming their way. This deep feeling of irrelevance, I think. Many Christians and sadly Christian leaders just circle the wagons, man. They just double down on old ways of talking and doing things in an in in attempt to increase or protect our social influence and power within a growing, disengaged, or even hostile culture. I remember like five or six years ago, all the conversation, the rage of the conversation was like, what, look at what's coming. It's going to be a hostile culture towards the church. They're going to come in and they're going to put pastors like in, in handcuffs and it's going to get crazy and and. And I don't know if I buy that anymore. You know what I think's coming? You're just irrelevant. Nobody's <laughs> hostile towards me. I'm just ignored. I think true Christians will just be more and more ignored. It's irrelevant. And that does things to certain Christians. They don't like that feeling. They feel a sense of like, well, this is, I'm just not a part of something legitimate anymore. And then what do we do with that fear? 
We look for social influence. We look for celebrities. We prop up our celebrities, don't we? And you know we do. Remember Tim Tebow? Remember 316? Was it on his face? I'm not knocking Tim Tebow. I don't know Tim Tebow. I'm just saying when he did that, what happened? We were foaming at the mouth. You weren't. Other Christians were. It got tweeted 94 million times. You don't connect with Tim Tebow? Some of you are like, I'm too young for that. Justin Bieber. When Justin Bieber posted on Instagram with an open Bible in his lap, I think, on his tour bus, and he, with a caption that just said, wowzers. <laughs> I'm not making fun of Biebs. He's probably legitimately a Christian. It's wonderful. I don't know. My point is, is it got 8 million likes. It got 8 million likes. That got 8 million likes. I could keep going. We've had plenty of people. When your favorite football player, when your favorite whoever comes out and they're like, I, you know, I love Jesus. There's something inside of us that's like, yes, we've got one on our team. Because those famous people, there's this sense in which we, we want that because why? Why? And I, I'm not saying there's not legitimate Christians in the, in, in fame. Like, and, and if there are, wonderful. I, like, don't, I'm not mocking it for those reasons. I'm saying let's look underneath it. It's fragile ego stuff. It legitimate, what it does is if it's, if they're on your team, it gives your brand recognition. It gives you a feeling and a sense that you, maybe you might be part of something that's legitimate. That's why we long for that stuff. And that's why we prop up certain pastors and leaders. Like, like, me, sort of, but not really. I'm not really a celebrity, but you know what I mean. Like, th- this is why we put up with these things. Why would we put up with pastors on stage, like, wearing $1,200 sneakers? I'm sorry, I just said it. Why would we, why would we put up with pastors that wear 5,000, that fly around in private jets, that can't be found without, a, like, an entourage of, a, 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 of a, a security guards around them? Why in the world would we put up with that? It's weird. It's super weird, but the reality is there's something inside of us that says, if he or she is amazing and almost untouchable, so am I. So am I. I could be, I'm a part of something so great. Because underneath we fear that we're a part of something that's obscure and irrelevant. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. You are. That's the whole thing. That's what we're wrestling with. That's what they're wrestling with. It's what we must wrestle with. We're living in a time that's struggling with this. And I'm just suggesting, I, look, when this happens to churches, like I said, people double down on the things that they've been doing for a long time instead of listening and thinking and receiving an invitation to go inward and say, hmm, Maybe getting smaller and more irrelevant is exactly what we need. Maybe that's what we need. For God's sake, we don't need a renewed vision for growth strategies. In, and I'm talking, in the, by growth I mean in size and in numbers. We need to resist the illusion that bigger platforms, social influence, or something like that is going to fix our problem. A, a new political hero is not going to fix the problem. It's not. 
We don't need more social power. We don't need more platforms. We don't need more famous Christian influencers or famous Christian pastors on the news speaking on behalf of the church and Jesus to regain trust with our neighbors. That's not what we need. What I'm suggesting is that we just need a renewed vision for simple, ordinary faithfulness, like true confession, like owning our faults, like bravely asking the Lord to search us and lead us into the right values and ways of living, even if, even if that way of living makes us feel small and insignificant in the world's eyes. Much of the energy and obsession over numerical growth and worrying about the size of the church and all of this and social influence and power, it all starts out well-intentioned. I know that. I've been in this for a while now. We, 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 want the, we want the world to change, Christian people, Christian leaders. We want the world to change. We want God's love to come down. We want it to impact culture. We want, it, we want to see his kingdom come and flourish. We want to see people who resist God or, or are just ambivalent to God. We want them to change their mind and see that God is the meaning of everything. But unfortunately, mixed in with those motivations over time, What's going on is this perverted compensation for what we fear, which is a loss of relevance and legitimacy. And I think that this is why we still struggle centuries after this letter with propping up certain Christians, pastors and speakers beyond where they probably should be. We get a thrill of attachment to these people. I'm well aware. I'm well aware. I'm careful because... In some ways, maybe I'm just like working out my own pastoral issue, irrelevant issues up here. I'm, you know, I'm aware of that. And I'm aware, I'm aware that like there are some, and you should be aware of this too if you're not already, I think you probably are, that there are an alarming number of men and women who get in Christian leadership roles, like mine, to feed their sad and unfortunate narcissistic tendencies. I'm well aware of it. What is more narcissistic than getting on a stage with a little microphone and saying, I speak for God? Not many things. And what I've discovered, much to my discomfort, underneath this disguised need for broad approval and applause are just wounds of shame that stretch back usually all the way to childhood. That's what's underneath that. What's underneath the... Fancy cars, the fancy rhetoric, the huge platforms on social media, the fancy suits, blah, blah. What stretches back is wounds that go back to being middle school kids. It's the same stuff. I don't have the time to get in all the reasons and the destruction that comes with it. You're probably well aware of some of it. But here's one of the key ways that we should be aware as people that we are headed in that direction, that your community is headed in that direction. But even maybe for you, if you're a Christian leader of some sorts in your spheres, do, do people have power and praise with zero proximity to people? If you have power and you have a lot of praise and applause, but you, have zero, you are not embedded in the community at all, like you're just a thing on a screen or a, you're just a thing on, a, on an Instagram feed or a TikTok or whatever it is, or you're just a podcast voice, you have zero proximity to people, be careful. It's probably an illusion. 
It doesn't lead, it doesn't go to good, faithful places. I think the lessons, I think there are lessons here for all of us in this encouragement from Paul. For me, I'm just learning to watch my life and my personal passions closely. I am in process of working this stuff out to the point of putting safeguards in place, such as regular accountability, which I have on just a regular weekly basis, but also our church has implemented some things. I'm on a yearly accountability with I meet with Pastor Brandon and Pastor Barry. Actually, this month I'm meeting with them to just kind of go over my life and to see if I'm fit. You know, not just for my sake, but for your sake. Is there something that just seems out of whack? Am I too big for my little britches? You know, do I think I'm too important? These are things that I'm trying to put in my life. I'm thinking carefully about am I exercising my own little sphere of authority, void of proximity to community that I seek to serve. I'm by no means, like I said earlier, a celebrity Christian. I'm under no illusions of that. Um, I don't have a social media platform. I don't have any touring speaking engagements. I don't have any book endorsement deals. But, all that being said, I could easily begin to bemoan my relative sense of obscurity. I, I, I could constantly gear uh, my efforts towards gaining more followers, admirers, fans, or whatever you want to call it through my own ministry. I could grow bitter that my efforts in this church don't seem to move the needle with enough people. Like I could somehow grow tired or exhausted or bitter that somehow I seem, I, I seem to only be helping or having some kind of an impact on, on a very small group of people. And I could somehow think, well, that's just not good enough for me. That could, that could happen to me. And so I'm actively seeking ways to notice and then name. And it's important. Notice in the name if my ego seems to be getting in the way again. And, and, and see if there aren't just areas in my own life that, man, I just need to die to that thing, whatever that is. I, for you, I, there's things here for you. I, I think for starters, it, it should go without saying probably, but, but don't get enamored or, or too attached to Christian leaders or celebrities that have zero physical proximity to you. Don't. <laughs> like, just. I'm not saying don't like, follow them or listen to them. I'm not trying to turn us into a church full of cynical critics of every pastor or leader or celebrity with large influence. That's not at all my goal. I'm just saying learn to practice a healthy dose of strategic neglect. Just relatively ignore it. Don't be too enamored with the whole business. No one here, you know, is somehow immune from these things. Just don't get caught up in all that hype. And just remember this, in in one sense, we're we're all on equal footing here. We, We really are. Myself included, no, no one here is closer to God than another person. We're all equally valuable in the kingdom of heaven, all of us. Peter says that in 1 Peter 2, in the New Testament, he says that all of us are, he quotes, royal, part of a royal priesthood. He calls all of us, those who are Christians, are priests. All of us that come to Jesus become priests and ambassadors for Christ. We all have a role, and that's incredibly important. Now think about this. 
Do you know what's interesting about that? The Bible calls you a priest. you know what's interesting about that? When you scan the Bible for priests, you just go, I want to do a little study of all the priests in the Bible. You know the ones that were faithful and good? They didn't get that much attention. At least from their peers or from us. Uh, good priests in the Bible? Samuel, Ahimelech, Abiathar, Zadok. But you don't even remember. You don't even remember the last three I just mentioned. That's the point. That's the point I'm getting at. Eugene Peterson wrote this. Priests are at their best when we don't notice them. The moment we begin to notice, we become weary. When he or, she, when, when he or she, whether laity or clergy, pretends to do God's work for us and alarm sounds, there have been thousands upon thousands of good priests whose names we will never know. Their anonymity suggests their authenticity. Jesus, of course, exemplifies that. Jesus probably is the most famous person to have ever walked the earth. Yet in his lifetime, and by the time of his death, he had very few friends and admirers. You ever think about that? He lived his entire earthly life in relative obscurity. We don't even have a single document telling us what he was up to from childhood until he was about 30. The disciples didn't even write anything about it. I, mean, I think they just didn't write anything about it because it wasn't, there was nothing significant to write about. And Jesus seems to just be fine with that. Seems to me that Jesus knew something deep to the core that I and many of you are still really wrestling with, which is that this world cherishes notoriety, likes, follows, fame, and power. And Jesus knew that is all an illusion. It's not real. It's just not real. And if I had to guess, every one of us deep inside knows it's an illusion. Like there's something in you that's nagging at you that just knows it. There is something nagging at you that says, I want the praise and I want the love of something or someone bigger than what the world has to offer. If you've got that feeling, like if you've got that feeling, that sense of like, I, I, want, I want admiration, love, praise, I want connection, I want intimacy, I want relationship with something that just, it, the kids won't do it, the family won't do it, the spouse won't do it, the job won't do it, the money won't do it, the whatever won't do it. If you know that, that is the place where communion starts. That's the place where real prayer takes off. And you actually begin to have a conversation with God about your ego. You can actually begin to say, God, here's the thing. This is the thing I really want. I'm, and I know that it's not going to get me what I actually really, really want. Help me die to it. And so my suggestion, my offer, my invitation to you is to figure out what that thing is and just say it out loud and say, I want to die to this. Help me die to that, God. Help me die to it. That's what we do when we come to church. You know, we, we remember that we don't have to, to, to wait to start dying. We can do it now in a spiritual sense. We can come in weekly and say, I, I want to die to this. And if we can die to it and we can begin to work at dying to it, there's all sorts of rest and freedom and peace on the other side of that. Well, we got to trust and we got to take the risk. And so I would invite you into that as you come 
to the table. If you're a Christian this morning, we take part in communion. This time to pray and to reflect on what Jesus has done on our behalf. On the last night that Jesus was with his friends and his disciples, and he was serving them and washing their feet and talking to them about how much he loves them and what he wants for them and how he doesn't want them to be afraid of the world and he wants them to know that he's overcome the world and he's having this beautiful conversation with them. And While they're t- having dinner together, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he took the cup of wine and giving thanks and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. A promise that he's with us, he's for us, he's cleaning us, he's reviving us, he's changing us. And so you're invited to come forward to this station or this station, taking a piece of the bread, dipping it in the wine or the juice. You don't have to be a member of this church to take part in communion. You do need to have an honest and genuine confession that Jesus is your Lord, that you're trying to work that out. I pray for you that you can face your own ego issues as I will continue to face mine. And hopefully as a community, we do that together. And let us pray. Father, we give you thanks this morning for your word, for our friends here, and for this meal. Thank you for coming down, rescuing us from our sin, from our death, from our slavery to all of it, and giving us new life. May we remember and reflect in a fresh way that we can begin to die to things that are holding us back from really experiencing life to the full right now. I pray that for myself, for my brothers and my sisters who are in this room. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for being steadfast in your pursuit of us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.